turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We are in verse 1. Philippians chapter 2. We're going through the book of Philippians. Philippians 2 verse 1. Looking at the first 11 verses. Joy in relationships. Paul has been teaching us about joy. He's in prison, but yet he writes of joy. It's a word that you'll find over and over again in this letter to rejoice. But also we find the word, the gospel. The gospel is mentioned over and over and over again, and the mind. So we then conclude that our joy is found in the gospel. In chapter 1, that he who began a good work is going to be faithful to complete it. Isn't that good news? That our relationship with God is based on the finished work of the cross, not our performance, the gospel. Also, we learned last week that our mind, how we think, and how we choose to believe then affects our joy. Uh, If we change our mind, then God will change our heart. Paul told us, for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1, verse 21. So Jesus is the source of joy. If we were to give an outline to the book of Philippians, chapter 1 is Jesus, J. And then chapter 2, what we're headed into this morning is others. To esteem others better than ourselves. To come find joy in relationships. And then finally, you, me. We need to be last. We need to have Christ first, others second, and then us last. And chapters 3 and 4 deal with the individual. When we think of relationships, relationships have the capacity for tremendous amount of joy, doesn't it? When there's harmony, one accord, like-mindedness, things are clicking on all cylinders, there's, there's tremendous joy that happens in relationships. But also, relationships have the capacity for tremendous heartache, don't they? When relationships are, are going wrong and relationships are, are sideways, it grieves us greatly and, and takes joy out of our lives. Now, we can't control other people's responses. This isn't a message of how somebody else should invest in relationships. This isn't meant to nudge your spouse as we go through this, this text or I wish my kids would get this, or my in-laws, or my co-workers. This is for me to look at my heart and say, am I esteeming others better than myself? But we believe from God's word, if we take a servant's perspective towards relationships, it will result in joy in our lives. I can guarantee you the greatest way to have a bad day, a bad week, a terrible month, the worst decade of your life, is just focus on yourself. That is going to lead to depression, despair, we very quickly can go down that spiral. But when we choose to lift our eyes to Christ and lift our eyes to others and begin to serve, it leads to joy. So join me in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. Therefore, brings us back to the last paragraph in chapter 1, where we find that We are citizens of of heaven, that our conduct is to be worthy of the gospel. So in light of the fact that we're all on the same team, we're on the gospel team, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ. Verse 1 gives us four realities. If you're taking notes, this is the foundation for relationships. It's what we share in common. If we don't understand this foundation, it's going to be difficult to relate to one another as believers. The word if is also translated sense, because as you look at these four realities, it's not a 
is it a possibility, but an absolute certainty that these things exist? First, consolation in Christ. The word consolation means encouragement. Have you experienced encouragement in Christ? Is Christ an encourager? Is he the one that comes alongside of you and says, come on, you can keep going. So we all experience encouragement in Christ. It's a certainty that's been given to us. Is there comfort of love? Since there is comfort of love, yes, there is comfort in Christ's love. Christ's love is the greatest source of comfort, isn't it? To know that we're loved by God unconditionally. To know that he's committed to be present in our lives. Not only have I experienced that, but we have experienced that together. The body of Christ has experienced that. We share that in common. And then also, any fellowship of the Spirit. And the word fellowship, it means koinonia in the Greek. That's the Greek word is koinonia. It means to share in common. We share in common the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God lives inside of me, but also the Spirit of God lives inside of you. Now, I'm going to preach for just a second. Every once in a while, I go in preacher mode, not too often, but bear with me for just a second. I'm going to do a little bit of preaching. Okay, here it is. I think in our American culture, we're way too individualistic in our understanding of the Christian life. What do I mean? We tend to only see Jesus in me. We read these verses and we go, Jesus encourages me. Jesus loves me. The Spirit of God lives inside of me. God has tenderness and mercy towards me. Now, is that true? Yes. But the context of Philippians chapter 2 is not me. It's we. So am I the only one that possesses this encouragement? Am I the only one that has the love of Christ? Am I the only one that has the the Spirit of God and tenderness and mercy? No, we share this in common. It's a we thing. It's It's a body of Christ thing. And that's our foundation for relationship. So here I'm learning to love you and you're learning to love me. And what do we come to understand? Oh, the Spirit of God lives in you. The Spirit of God lives in me. The way that Christ loves me, Christ loves you. God's compassionate towards me, he's compassionate towards you. And when we have that worldview and that understanding of the New Testament and the body of Christ, it affects relationships. And isn't it powerful when people share something in common and they have koinonia? I mean, get some diehard Broncos fans together and you're going to have some energy. I mean, talk about a we. These guys communicate like they're on the team. Like, like, yeah, we're going to have a good season and we're about ready to head into preseason and we just got the running back from the Kansas City Chiefs. And you're like, I didn't realize you were on the team. Like, but that's, that's how deeply that they share the, the Broncos in common, right? This week I had the opportunity to do some Bible software training. Sound like ex- exciting stuff, right? It was three days of, of training, eight to five. Uh, and you know what made that uh, training really exciting? It was a great tool and great uh, software. As I got to do it together with other believers. There was four other of our pastors, so five of us from RMC that did the training uh, together, and our minds got, got blown. And then people came from all over the state and even from uh, Canada, and we got to host it here at, at RMC. There was even a Texan that was here. Turn, turns out he loves Jesus. I didn't, I didn't realize those two could go together, but man, he loves the Lord. And now he's on my contacts list, right? And 
We're, we're Facebook friends. That, and what made it enjoyable was to share it in common, all right? And so when we think of the Spirit of God, we, we think of, wow, we get to share this in common. And it comes to lead to very beautiful relationships. The last certainty is affection and tender mercies. It means compassion and tenderness. Affection is tenderness. Mercy is compassion that we receive from Christ. It's what we share in common. In verse 2, fulfill my joy, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. This is for responses to the realities. It's the exhortation. Paul is going to exhort us to do something with what we know, and he says, fulfill my joy. The New Testament was written in Greek, and in Greek you have imperatives, and imperatives are the command. And the word fulfill is actually an imperative, meaning that God wants us to do something. We're to, to complete joy, to complete Paul's joy. He's saying, I want you to take action on what you're hearing. Why would it fulfill Paul's joy for the church to relate to each other in this manner? Because God used him to plant the church and establish the church. Here he is in prison. If he hears that the church of Philippi is fighting, we know there's division in the church from chapter 4. That's going to break his heart. But if he hears that the church is loving one another and walking in unity, that's going to bring him tremendous joy. Also, I think Paul had experienced the joy in relationships. When we read of his writings, he's always mentioning people, isn't he? He loved people. He was in relationship with people. So he knows God's going to be glorified. The church is going to be edified if they choose to walk in relationship. But put in your mind, God wants me to do something here. He wants me to put these things into action. There's four characteristics. The first is being like-minded. This is to have the same purpose and goal. So as believers, how can we be like-minded? How can we have the same purpose and goal? We know that we're loved by God. We know that God wants to reach people that don't know Christ as our Savior. And so that's our banner, isn't it? That's our goal. That's what causes us to be like-minded. There will be times where we'll have differences. Have you ever had a difference with another believer, a different way of thinking, a, a different strategy or an agenda? And it's a willingness to yield together to say, we're going to be like-minded. We're going to be on the same page here. How many petty arguments could be left to the side amongst God's people if we remembered the goal, right? How many churches have divided over trivial things? Not, not important things. Differences of personality, differences of opinion, differences of operation. And so we're encouraged, be like-minded. And apply that in your personal relationships, inside of your family. How can I choose to be a team player? Where am I holding on to things that really aren't important to be like-minded? And then also, having the same love. We're reminded that we all experience and share the love of Christ. I'm going to extend the love that I've experienced from Christ. Being of one accord. This is an orchestra under the same conductor. You watch an orchestra and you have all of these instruments and the conductor, and they're all watching the conductor, looking at their music, and man, they're on cue. I was watching the orchestra at, at Christmas time, and for some reason, I was sitting up in the balcony, and, and I was drawn to the drummer, because the drummer did a lot of this. 
right? He had his big moment, and then bam, bam, you know? And he was on cue, and he had a lot of impact. And that was beautiful to watch, a group of people that could be able to get in one accord. And as we put our eyes on Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, we come into tremendous unity. Relationships has everything to do with our relationship with Christ. It has everything to do with keeping our eyes on the conductor of one mind, specifically the mind of Christ. We're to adopt the, the mindset of Christ. So begin to think, how can I apply those realities into my relationships? Verse 3, it's continuing in the exhortation, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Meditate on the word, let nothing. That stood out to me. No thing. God doesn't want anything done in selfish ambition or conceit because it leads to destruction. It's the destruction of relationships. Here's two negatives, selfish ambition, conceit. We live in a culture that is driven by selfish ambition. In fact, that's what the world preaches as its gospel. Do what you want, do what makes you feel good, do what's going to satisfy you. Oh, you don't love your spouse anymore? You don't have the warm fuzzies towards them anymore? This life is all about what you want, so go ahead and divorce them. You don't feel like being a parent? It's too hard, it's too difficult? Well, just pawn those kids off on somebody else. Just give up, it's, it's not worth it. Oh, you don't like your job? Well, you deserve something better. So go out and get it, right? It, it's all selfish motivation and it slides in there so, so carefully, so craftily. And God's saying, no, don't let that be your, your motivation. Don't allow selfish ambition and then conceit, it means vain glory. And the two are linked together. The attitude of selfish ambition drives a person to vain glory, to vain conceit. Because then it becomes about, what do people think about me? What position do I have? What power do I have? And it's emptiness. It's pride. We could easily put pride in there along with conceit. How many of my actions are motivated by selfish ambition and pride? Here's the antidote. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Again, this is action. This is fulfill my joy. This is how we fulfill joy is to choose the attitude of lowliness of mind. Humility. Now, what is the source of humility? Humility comes from understanding who God is and who I'm not. <laughs> right? We look at Jesus and his sacrifice and his perfection and very quickly that should produce in us a lowliness of mind. There's a healthy perspective of always being reminded of our sin past and our sin present. What God has forgiven us from, what he is forgiving us from, what he will forgive us from in the future. I don't want to live in condemnation. You know, I don't want to walk around not believing that God has forgiven me. But I don't want to pretend that there's no sin struggles in my life. I don't want to pretend that I, I didn't sin this week, you know. Because if I'm honest with myself, I've got plenty of material for lowliness of mind, right? So adopting that mindset that says, man, God, you've been so gracious to me. Then this results in a, a desire to esteem others better than ourselves. Now take that right at face value, right what God's word says. He's actually saying that he wants you to put others before yourself. To value them over yourself. 
I'm going to esteem you better than myself. And that goes right into verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. There's three imperatives in this paragraph. The first was fulfill. The second is look. So that means it's, again, a command where God wants us to do something. He says, look. I want you to look at the interests of others. To notice, to look out for. It's not a condemnation of considering your own interests, but it's to put other people's interests before your own. Christ's focus was upon Father and others, the Heavenly Father and others. So when we wake up in the morning, what's our tendency? My tendency, apart from Christ, is to think about Team Eric. Did I get enough sleep? Do I feel grouchy? How quickly that I can get coffee into my mouth, right? I need to eat. And so the sanctified life or the changed life, the the life that's led by Christ, is God would want us to move us from a place of selfishness to begin to consider the interests of those around us. So what is my wife's needs, desires this morning? I bet she would enjoy a cup of coffee. She would probably appreciate if I didn't leave the kitchen an absolute mess, right? What are going on in the life of my kids? What kind of encouragement do they need? Do they need to eat? What, what kind of food would they, would they like to eat? Do they need a, a kind word? See, I'm, I'm entering into the day with how can I serve instead of a desire to be served. Jesus came to serve. He came to lay down his life for a ransom for many. So as we come into this room weekly, it's easy for us to think about ourselves, isn't it? How, how am I doing? What do I need? And to begin to look around and go, wow, there's a lot of people in here. Maybe there's somebody that I can pray for, that I can listen to, that I could encourage. Our neighborhood, to think of our neighborhood as an opportunity to consider other people's needs, to be able to serve instead of inspect to be served. Go back to work this week. A lot of opportunities to look on other people's interests. What's going on in their lives? What are the challenges? What are, what are the needs? This, this is very practical. The dishes are dirty, wash them. The laundry needs to be done, do it. A kind word needs to be spoken, say it. But it's a, it's a perspective. It's, it's looking. I, I'm taking the time to notice other people around me instead of just looking at my own two feet. In verse 5, then we get to the evaluation, how we are to think. So we see what we have in common. We, we see what we're supposed to do, esteem other people's needs before our own, and then how we are to think. In verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul focuses on the mind over and over again in this letter. He says, how are you thinking? How are you thinking? How are you thinking? And he gives us the view of the mind of Christ. This is the way that Christ thought. He thought about others over himself. This is the third imperative. This is the third command in the Greek. Mind is actually a command because it means think thus. God is saying, I want you to think the way that Christ thought. I want you to adopt the attitude of Christ. 
we get a specific understanding of how Christ thought in these next few verses. And, and we evaluate that in verse 6. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So let's, let's slow down here and understand what verse 6 is saying. It's saying being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. First understanding very clearly is Jesus is God. And there's no qualms about that. False religions always change the identity of Christ and don't believe that Jesus is God. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word is a title for Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. And as we think about his humanity, we first have to grasp his deity. And what's this section? Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Some translations put this as something to be grasped or held onto. Christ didn't consider his equality with God as something to be grasped or held onto. Jesus and his humanity, he didn't hold on to his deity so tightly that it kept him from being willing to come and serve. Now, please don't get confused. He never stopped being God. It means that he was willing to step out of the glory of heaven to enter into this life as a man. Humility, the mind of Christ. So, and there should not be nothing about our character or our accomplishments or our personality that gives us an attitude that says, I'm above doing this. Does that make sense? So here Christ is God, but he never thought or, or had that attitude of pride that, well, I'm above coming down to this earth and serving. I'm above coming down to this earth and dying upon the cross. He's the ultimate undercover boss. You get what I'm saying? So it's really easy for us to hold on to our experience or hold on to our position or hold on to our accomplishments or our education. And see, Jesus didn't do that. He was God, but he was willing to come and serve. In verse 7, but made himself of no reputation. The word no reputation, it means he emptied himself. Again, never stopped being God. But in this attitude of service, he poured himself out. In this attitude of service, he made himself of no reputation. In a selfish-driven society, re re reputation is everything, isn't it? But Christ wasn't worried about reputation. He had no reputation. He was born of a virgin, which caused his existence to have a, a cloud of skepticism. How many people believed the whole virgin birth story? If I'm Mary's dad, I'm like, I'm not buying that. Nice try. I want to talk to Joseph, right? So throughout his life, there was all this skepticism about his birth. Where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. A few of the disciples that were discovering Christ asked this question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What's the expression there? He grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, right? Nothing good comes out of, of Nazareth. Jesus, as a child, was a refugee in Egypt. Into his adult life, he spent the majority of it being a carpenter. I would have liked to have seen his work. And then his public ministry was three years, and he was ridiculed and rejected. He was a man of, of service, 
not a man of reputation. He wasn't concerned. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. The Greek word is doulos. It literally means servant or slave. Jesus chose to take the position of being a servant, of being a slave. The reason we have the word bondservant is bondservant means slave by choice. He did it willingly. Christ, right before he died, has the disciples in the upper room. One of the last things that he does with them is he washes their feet. He took the position of being a servant. Why did he wash their feet? Because their feet were dirty. And their feet were very stinky. Can you imagine Peter's feet? Now, our tendency would be like, dude, wash your feet. You stink, right? Or, hey, can somebody come take care of Peter's feet? This was the job of a slave. This was the job of a servant. But Jesus gets a towel and he just begins to wash their feet. And he looks at the disciples and he says, I've given you example. Go do likewise. You see a need, meet a need. He came as a servant. And coming in the likeness of men. This is an interesting phrase. Though his humanity was genuine, he was different from all humans in that he was sinless and God. So in the likeness of men, he was all man. He experienced humanity to the fullest degree, but he was different because he never sinned and he's God. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So he's a man. And in his humanity, he humbled himself and became obedient to death the death of the cross. The cross wasn't an ordinary death. In service, in serving, in considering other people's needs, in esteeming other people higher than himself, first it was obedience to the Father. He went to the cross because the Father asked him to. He said, not my will, but your will be done. I'll receive the cup of of suffering. Secondly, he went to the cross in love for us. He took the shame, took our sin, took being spit upon and whipped and his beard being ripped out, paying the price for our sin, the punishment for our sin. See, because sometimes when God calls us to serve others, it can really grate against us. And we're like, I, I don't think so. You know? Well, think about the cross. Maybe you've got a real jerk at work. You're saying, I'm not serving him. I'm not serving her. There's no way. Well, it's going to seem like too much of a burden until you look at the way that Christ served us upon the cross. Amen? It's not about the person. It's not just about me. It's not just about, well, I want joy in relationships, so I've got to esteem others better than myself. It's going, my life is Christ, and Christ served. The Father's asking me to live a life of service to esteem others better than myself. I'm taking on the, the mind of Christ. This, this is the way that Christ lived. Christ extended to us. He says, I want you to have my joy. Do you think Christ went through his life with joy? Absolutely. He says, you can have my joy if you choose to think this way and then begin to serve and begin to live this out. Before we go into the last section the mind of Christ and evaluation how we are to think. Why does Paul address the mind? Because thoughts become actions. The world unbelievers say thoughts aren't powerful. You can think whatever you want. Complain all you want in your mind. Run people down in your, in your mind all you want. Thoughts don't matter. 
God says thoughts are important. Take on the mind of Christ. Take every thought captive. Because thoughts will become actions. And actions then result in our character. All right? So it is possible through God's work in our life, if we begin to think differently, that we're going to start to have different actions. You're going to start to do crazy things like serve people wherever you go. Start looking around for needs and start, start loving people because that's the way that you're thinking. That's the way that we're, we're thinking. So it's so important to, to have the mind of Christ, to adopt the mind of Christ. The last section is exaltation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Humiliation, humility, but then the Father exalting Christ where he's highly exalted above every name. There's no name greater than the name of Christ. Only salvation comes through the name of Christ. And verse 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's ultimate goal was the glory of Christ alone. See, Christ is so exalted that every knee should bow. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When we think of the name of Jesus, it's not just a title, but it embodies who he is. His person, his character, his nature. Somebody that you're close to, when you think of their name, it's not just a title, but you're thinking of the whole entire person. And so we're bowing down to the person, the work, and the nature of Jesus Christ. Everyone will bow Everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is, is it too late? Timing is important in this. Because when we look at the teaching of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, God makes it very clear that you need to receive Christ as your Savior in this lifetime. There's a lot of people that if you ask them, they would say, you know, I believe in Jesus. They're maybe not even necessarily opposed to Jesus. They believe that Jesus exists. But then if you ask them, is Jesus God? Uh, I don't know about that. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Are you in relationship with Jesus? Does Jesus have any meaning to you? Would you bow down before Jesus? Would you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? No, no, that's an entirely different thing. And in just a moment here, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Christ as your Savior. Because if you reject Christ through the course of your life, the Bible tells us it results in eternal separation from God. And there'll be that moment where those that don't know Christ, that rejected Christ, will stand before him at the great white throne judgment. And at that moment, they're going to confess that Jesus is Lord. But it's going to be too late. However, it's not just fire insurance. It's to come in relationship with Jesus. It's to be drawn by his love, to realize that he died for your sin and rose again. So I want you to think about, have I received Christ as my Savior? Have I bowed down before him? Have I confessed him as Lord? And in a moment, I'll give you an opportunity to raise your hand, to cry out to the Lord from your heart and receive Christ as your Savior. Before we do that, I want to make a quick application. Let's get to the heart. Church, let's get to the heart. Let's share our hearts with one another. Having this wonderful time together, singing together, studying God's word together, you know what's going to happen as we get up out of these chairs and head to the foyer and 
retrieve our kids if we have them in children's ministry is we're going to leave extremely selfish. Oh, that's good news, right? Selfishness is so real and it's so powerful, isn't it? In order for us to digest the word of God, it's to understand I've got to do war with selfishness. Not just today, but each and every day. And think of the words of Christ and the reality of his crucifixion, that I've been crucified with Christ. I have to reckon the old man dead. I got to let selfishness know, Team Eric, you're not going to rule. The Spirit of God is going to rule. You've been crucified with Christ and enter into a, a life of service. Jesus said, if you desire to follow me, take up your cross. Take up your cross. That's a surrender. That's a saying, it's not my will, it's not my way, it's not my agenda, it's, it's the way of Christ. And as we leave this morning, press into that. Say, okay, if this is going to result in change in my life, then I've got to reckon the old man dead, take up my cross, and follow Jesus. But church, this is something to be lived. Are you tired of being selfish? Are you tired of trying to make everything revolve around you? Well, those that are close to us are tired of our selfishness, aren't they? And to be able to say, you know what? Life could look completely different. There could be joy. I could truly live for the Lord and put others' needs before my own. So let's pray together. Father, I know my selfishness, it's so strong. It causes such damage in relationships. God, we ask that you would change us, that we could adopt the mind of Christ. We do reckon our old man dead, that our sinful nature has been crucified with Christ. We want to take up our cross and follow you. Put you first. Put others before ourselves. Would you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit? Father, this is a a sobering passage to think of every tongue, every knee confessing that you're Lord. You know the hearts. You know those that have surrendered to you, that have bowed down before you. And you know those that have never opened up their heart and life to you. If you'd like to confess Jesus as Lord, you're ready to allow him to have control of your life, accept his offer that he's God, that he died for your sins and rose again, turning from sin and seeing Christ be my Savior. Would you go ahead and raise your hand? Just raise it high. I'm going to say a prayer with you. Praise the Lord. And praise God. I see your hands here. Hands over here as well. Praise the Lord. I see your hand over here. Many responding. If your hands raised, pray this with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins and rose again. I invite you to be the Lord of my life. I turn away from my sin, receive your forgiveness. Thank you for saving me and thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen.